Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Henrik Molen. He's the CEO of PhysiTrack, a patient engagement technology company that he founded in 2012. PhysiTrack was initially a side hustle for Henrik in parallel to a career in investment management. In the first few years of PhysiTrack, he worked for a $15 billion hedge fund, but when friends and family invested over $3 million in PhysiTrack, he left and became their full-time CEO. PhysiTrack's now used in 100 countries around the world and is a leading provider in physiotherapy, telehealth and home exercise prescription, among other things. Henrik's a resident of Monaco and London and he joins me today. Henrik, how are you going? I'm uh, doing very well. Thanks for uh, inviting me on the podcast. No I'm worries. very excited. Monaco and London. So w- which one are we in today? I'm in Monaco today. So I just got back after uh, three and a half months in lockdown in uh, London, which wasn't too bad. Got to focus on work a lot, which was needed. Yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot less travel though would happen if you're in lockdown in London, though. Yeah, sort of. The, it went from uh, getting on a plane one or two times a week to uh, taking a walk around the park for you know 45 minutes uh, every morning during the worst part of the lockdown, where you're only allowed outside for exercise. So yeah, it was kind of a big change. Mm. I'd have to say. Totally. Look, I'm really interested to get into the the details of PhysiTrack and and what you do, mate. So let's start it off. Set the scene. What is PhysiTrack? Who's it for, and what problem does it solve? Yeah. Well, you did a great job in that intro. So we're a digital health company. We're specialized in remote patient engagement. We sell that technology to healthcare companies. So we're B two B. We have uh, customers in the private space and the public space. We have big customers, like really big customers and really small customers, and they're all over the world. We launched the product widely and commercialized it at the end of 2015. At this point, we're in about 100 countries. We're in five languages at last count. We'll be in nine languages pretty soon. So remote page remote engagement, and with that, we mean exercise prescription, education, there's outcomes tracking and analysis. And then obviously, as, as you mentioned there, uh, the flavor of 2020, telehealth. And we have our own platform. It's specialized uh, with a twist for physiotherapy, following a backing we had from the UK government and uh, enterprise customers uh, in the UK as we launched that back in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And, and so is it used predominantly by physiotherapists or there's other, other customers as well? It's a pretty wide range. So physio and that's MSK physio, it's a neuro physio. I mean, and you have all the different variations of that. So, so all the way up to advanced sports rehab, we have pediatrics. We're also used for occupational health and, and safety. So, so stuff like, you know, fitness, wellness, and uh, just injury prevention. And then we have psychologists on the platform as well. We have a fair bit of uh, mental rehab, emotional well-being. So it's, it's quite wide in terms of what the, what the UI can do. And so we have a quite wide range of customers. But yeah, physio in all shapes and forms, that's the, that's the main focus of what we do. Yeah, got it. And and I like the enablement of exercise prescription. Tell us a bit more about exercise prescription. Who, who would who would benefit from that? Well, so this is basically an extension of the hands-on situation that you would have with a patient. So you have a patient in, in hands-on treatment, face-to-face. You do you work with him or her uh, for 45 minutes or an hour in the clinic. And then as that person goes home, they will, uh, to recover better, uh, uh, they 
should be doing some of these exercises on their own when they leave the clinic. So we become that care extension. Uh, and then obviously now uh, with, the, with the lockdowns and stuff, that care extension was very important with people that were in hands-on treatments before uh, the lockdowns. Uh, they needed to continue the work at home mm-hmm. on their own. So the exercise prescription was very important. And then obviously we were able to mix that exercise prescription with telehealth uh, and, and that hands-on journey would become completely digital but the exercise prescription it's it's a great way for for a clinic just to continue the work when they're not uh, there for the patient got it got it just touching on lockdown then how did COVID-19 impact PhysiTrack well so the description of the platform and then what I just said that the extension of the care plans as you don't see people face to face that became the base case for mm-hmm. this because patients could not see their physiotherapists and their doctors during this period. There was all, it all had to happen uh, remotely. And as such, our business uh, really exploded in a very, very short period of time because mostly uh, of the telehealth solution that we have that's built into PhysiTrack and uh, because it's so specialized in, in, in doing interactive and activity-based treatments, meaning you can take content from PhysiTrack's library, you can stream it inside of a video call and you don't lose any quality in, in that stream is an innovation that the UK government gave, gave us a grant for. So we had an extreme product market fit as COVID hit. And the genesis of the acceleration, I think, I mean, we were well known in a lot of markets and we were known as a go-to provider for home access prescription. But what we did to try to help uh, customers around the world, we provided telehealth for free for, for the first couple of months of lockdown. Hmm. And we communicated that very widely. And at the time, we had something like forty or 50,000 customers around the world. And we pushed out the message that, you know, we can help you stay in touch with your patients, continue the treatments with our technology. And we thought that, you know, if we get a, a few hundred new customers from that, that'd be great. Uh, and we actually ended up getting something like 11,000 new customers in the month of, um, of March. Uh, and then to put that in perspective, we'd sign up maybe between 800 and 1,000. So uh, we, we posted about 200% of a whole year's growth in the space of six weeks. Unreal. Um, and um, yeah, it was something that for me professionally, it was the most intense period that I've actually lived through. Hmm. And, and, I, and I, I was in a trading desk when 9-11 hit and, uh, and I went through all sorts of big announcements and crises in the financial markets when I was active there. But uh, it doesn't compare at all. I'm not saying that 9-11 was an easy event in, in, in any way, but professionally, the decisions you had to make, the way that you had to look at your business, uh, the way that you have to look at the robustness of your system and your processes, the, the number of things that we had to deal with on an hourly basis was, was just, yeah, it was ridiculous and quite overwhelming at, at times, I have to say. But yeah, it was a, a very intense period. Yeah, completely. And so you've had a little bit of time to reflect on it now and it's still fresh, but there's, I guess you can look back at it now and not be as intense. What would you say, like, say three key learnings from going through that growth spurt that, that you've taken from that experience? Yeah, well, so the, the big thing was that when something extreme happens, like in the world or to your business, then all the weaknesses that you have become very visible. Is like when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing pants. So in, in our case, it was like a big wave that crashed in and then we had to see how good swimmers we were and there was a massive wave we had to become 
you know, triathlete swimmers mm-hmm. basically overnight. So that was the first thing that we learned. So everything that in your business that is not perfect will be really visible and it'll be visible really fast. And so every process, every component, every team member will have a hundred times more pressure. And I think that's almost literal for some hours during the most intense period that they will have, they will have a hundred times more pressure on them in a very short period of time. So the first learning for me was that whatever culture you have, whatever process, whatever infrastructure you have, whatever communication you have, you're stuck with it. And what's and all, that's what you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be very hard to make big changes to all of that stuff as things move really, really fast. So that's the, that's the number one thing. You're stuck with whatever you have mm-hmm. for good and for bad. And then the second thing communication and workflows they're really key and so you have to have structured communication and then this is important for any company any any startup really and any company of any size you need to have really straight lines to communication ways for people to communicate and especially as things go crazy it can't be a doubt as to how you reach people and how we get things done Uh, and so whatever you've implemented in your team prior to something like this you're stuck with it so i think a good thing to do for a business owner and entrepreneur is to really twist and turn different scenarios and as you structure the communication and and so that you have ways for everybody to come together and collaborate and we were lucky that we had a very tight process in place we're completely virtual we always were so we didn't have any offices that we were locked out of or we didn't have to transition a team to video communication tools like like Zoom. We already had WhatsApp groups for communication. So WhatsApp rather than, than Slack, for example, because we have people in so many time zones. So it's important for people to be able to reach each other regardless of what time of day it is. So people don't shut down Slack because it's a work tool. So we had some people on, on WhatsApp, for example. Mm-hmm. So, and then the groups that we had inside of the teams for projects, etc. So structure-wise, it was pretty much business as usual for us in terms of how we interacted. And we were able to put a hundred times pressure on it that didn't change the process and so you know that's something that was that's very important to so structure the communication something that, that we learned was very important and yeah you know just just things like i used to update the team on a weekly basis with the numbers and the growth and, and things like that with full yeah. transparency i reverted back to hourly updates things were moving so fast yeah. we needed to keep track of like where we needed to uh, because usually the, the sign up on the new customer flow would dictate where the pressure would come in terms of the support team, where you could expect questions to come in from the support team or, you know, follow-up questions to the sales team and, and also loads and servers and stuff like that. So I started updating people on an hourly basis and I, I kept to that. I think I did 18 hourly updates on, on some of these most intense days. And yeah, my co-founder and I, we, instead of having a weekly, like top to bottom review of the company, like a big uh, weekly stand-up, we'd do a, a daily, very early stand-up around 6 a.m. where we'd look at what we were faced with for the day based on, you know, the flows that we had seen overnight from, from Australia and from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also just to try to fix things that would pop up, you know, as the tide goes out, you can see who's, uh, who doesn't have enough AWS capacity. It's <laughs> the old saying there. So, uh, you know, the comes before uh, and the structure very important and then i guess the last thing uh, your team is really everything and you will identify very quickly who is not a team player and who doesn't have it in him or her to be faced with something like this and you have to know the team very very well and it's probably like a sports team where you know everybody's weaknesses and strengths and, and you can read things into their communication when people 
and work for too long hours, for example, so that you can you can take a load off of their back when you can see that they're sort of flagging. And yeah, you need to make sure that the team adapts to this new normal, meaning that you have to approach the period that you go through. It's something that is potentially permanent. So when things explode like that it's easy to say just sit just listen i know it this is going to be tough but it's just for a limited period of time it's just going to be for a few days and then things are going to die down it's very important to approach it like it's actually going to be something that's going to be with you on a permanent basis because then you can you set people's expectations in terms of workload and they'll be more vocal to you when they're tired or they can question processes that we have in place and you know it's important to listen to them and so in the very first couple of days there was a question of you know how do we structure especially the support effort around these things. And we, we had realized that we were too open in terms of how customers could reach us for support queries. And, and so if you're used to, to having maybe uh, 100 people a week reaching out with questions, all of a sudden you, you might have you know, 500 people in, in an hour that will ask about stuff. And so we hadn't structured the communication properly around that. And so you, know, you have to sit down with the team and say, if this is the new normal, how can we structure things so that we can survive this? Because obviously a, a small team couldn't survive that pressure for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, listening very carefully to what your team tells you, they, they're always going to be right. They're your Cassandras who will just predict what's going on before you will know about that. And that you have to really listen to what they need. They, if they need another headcount or a new computer, one computer literally blew up from because a, a guy in Houston had lightning struck his house. So his, his, his computer just, uh, just uh, went down and he had to get out during lockdown and try to find a new computer, which is uh, was pretty crazy. So, uh, Hey, look, that, that, that's all super positive. There's got to be some mistakes that you made along the way too. What, what are some of the mistakes that you made along the way and, and how did you go about correcting them? Well, there were, there were many, many mistakes. Well, there were not really mistakes, but things in retrospect, we should have thought about a lot of stuff earlier. And as we structured things, and again, you know, the time came out, and then some instances, a couple of us weren't wearing pants, and you know, some of the systems were not ready for this stuff. One thing that was very simple is that we didn't actually have a dedicated marketing page for telehealth, and that really helps when you're communicating to 50,000 people that you have a, a, you're going to help them with telehealth, and we hadn't described it properly. And so, yeah, if you haven't slept in a few days, it's pretty tough to be creative and putting together something like that in a couple of hours at 6 a.m., which is what we literally did one morning. And, you know, a bit of luck in terms of that. My, my co-founder, he's one of the best UI UX designers and, and, uh, and web page designers uh, on the planet, in my view. So we could actually update things very quickly and together just as the two founders. We didn't need to bring out, bring in or wait for some one of the team members to wake up and, and to help us to make updates to, to design or you know the web pages communication we can get stuff up and running super quickly uh, other other things which that sounds crazy now but we didn't have a paywall for telehealth so we we basically open up the floodgates for telehealth traffic and and the way that we are structured is that we we buy the server capacity from from uh, Dolby from Dolby Laboratories the, from from their telehealth technology provider or their video calling providers and uh, and so we open up the, the, the business for enormous financial risk and we didn't actually know what we were getting into because we thought you know as I said you know, a few hundred new customers and this will be great and here today we have like 22 23,000 new customers and that's the that's the equivalent of what we making what we'll have in a year right so we walked into that with no way of switching on to make this page or put up a paywall to protect ourselves like this so yeah that was something that that we thought that that was probably a good thing to 
to, to get up and running. And so we, obviously we kicked ourselves for not having had that in place earlier. And you see the calls come in minute by minute. And at some point we had 100,000 sessions a week, which is the equivalent of what a, a multi-billion dollar company like Teladoc would have in a week. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty scary to go through that. And in parallel, we were, we were coding the paywalls that we knew that if things went too crazy, because you can bankrupt a company that way. So we knew that if we didn't have it up and running on time, then things would not be great. And so, yeah, we, we, we had to code that very quickly. High stakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, really. It's, but, you know, if you're looking from a tactical and strategic perspective, I'd say we, we didn't really make any mistakes in terms of the strategic part. This, mm. As we were very early on the telehealth ball in already 2016, and we thought that was going to become a thing. And, and so we knew that we needed a telehealth solution that did something specifically for physiotherapy. And as COVID hit, we had already three years worth of usage inside of that product. And also, you know, very early on, we, we had bifurcated the business. So we had enterprise on the one hand, which is more of a manual sales process and we had small to mid size on the other hand uh, which is automated meaning people find us and they pay with the credit cards and they have the subscriptions running so we were able to have parallel tracks going in terms of taking care of customers supporting and monetization and it, it didn't change much apart from the fact that you know you have a hundred times higher pressure on it especially the small to mid size side of things mm-hmm. but it wasn't something that was a problem for us per se and, you know, there were some mistakes, obviously, as you heard, in setting priorities and, and stuff like that. But uh, I think, you know, some of the features we didn't figure out that we needed until you, you start getting the support emails. Like, we maybe it, it would be a good idea to have, like, diagnostic tests uh, so that people can test their webcams and their sound settings before they go on to a call. We built our teller solution for enterprises, and they are usually a little bit tighter in terms of, you know, beta testing a product before they push it out to use with patients. In this case, you know, you can have a, a one-person physiotherapy shop on the on Tasmania uh, dealing with an elderly patient over, over telehealth or on a computer that, that somebody's grandkids set up like 10 years ago. And, and so when you start getting support emails from people that are saying, I can't see my patient, then you realize that maybe we should have a diagnostic tool inside of the system so that mm-hmm. people can test the webcams and not have to email us about yeah. it. So little, little stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, there's so many things that we can have done better, but I think what's most what's important for business owners to know is that it's okay to make mistakes and mistakes can fix be fixed quickly if you have the right team and the right workflow the right communication but you have to learn super quickly i think that's important and just trying to read what's going on in the market and listen to your customers listen to your team they will tell you about stuff that you will have a shot at correcting relatively quickly if you have the right sort of setup in terms of, of your company Okay, got it. That's some good advice for some uh, entrepreneurs that might want to learn from what you've gone through. So, so thank you, Henrik. I'm fascinated. Your background says you had PhysiTrack as a as a side hustle to your day job. So I mentioned that in your bio. How did like running PhysiTrack on its own has got to be a, a tough gig? How did you manage? both doing, you know, a full-time job and then doing this as a side hustle. There's got to be a lot of other entrepreneurs out there that are trying to do the same thing or want to do the same thing. What's some advice you could give to someone that's wanting to make a move from being in a boring old day job to moving into their passion project of being a full-time entrepreneur? Yeah. So listen, just to start at the end there, I think that everybody should have a side hustle. I think it's great for the day job to have a side hustle because you will appreciate your day job 
a lot mm. when you're building a side hustle or a startup on the side and that proves to be quite difficult especially monetization and stuff like that so you, it's really nice to have a day job where it was a Woody Allen that said that 70% of a day job is just showing up and so that's, that's really nice to have that feeling when, when things are tough on the side hustle side of things and and, and the similar on the other side in terms of the monetization or if you are trying to be an entrepreneur and trying to build something, it will cost money, you know, depending on, on what it is. And if you make money in your day job, you can use that cash to seed your business. And mm. so you don't have to necessarily quit your day job, uh, start an entrepreneurial thing, and then raise money for it. There are many, many upsides in, in, in seeding something of your own because you can maintain control and things like that. But also in terms of the risk in it, like if the startup fails, then you're not going to be left high and dry financially, which is very important. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, I always, I always say to, I always say to people, this is the best thing you can ever do. So, and it's, it's never a black or white thing. It's, it always, I think that don't ever quit the day job and just start from scratch. I'd say do both. Mm. I mean, in my case, it was the best thing I ever did. And it, it got very crazy at some point. So I was the head of business development for, for a big American hedge fund. And I worked on physical track at the same time. And I seriously questioned my sanity more than once, as, as especially as things took off for physical track. And I had to do some serious juggling to make everything work. And, you know, you don't want to disappoint anyone on, on either side. Uh, and, and, you know, but the way I did it was that I really de- redefined how I looked at my, my days and my weeks in terms of the available time. So for me, I stopped looking at, at life as a, as a normal sort of work week calendar with Monday to Friday and eight to six or nine to five or nine to seven or whatever, whatever it is with social stuff tucked into it. So I, I compacted everything I could outside of my day job hours. I could put fish track time in and I usually meant, you know, between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. before the day job would start, I would work on PhysiTrack and I would do a lot of stuff in Australia because the time zone worked really well for that. And then from after hours, from from 6 until, say, you know, 11 o'clock or midnight, then I would would do a lot of work, especially in the U.S. and the late U.S. markets. And Australia would wake up again just before I got to bed. And then pretty much all weekends, you know, we would do strategic stuff, we'd do do software design and things like that uh, on the weekend. So if you look at it hours-wise, it was possible to cram in pretty much a full-time engagement into a week hour-wise uh, all right it, it's grueling and it drives you a little bit crazy and i probably changed me a lot in terms of when i dedicate myself to something i i just get it done and i don't get easily distracted because you know if you don't have a lot of time you just have to let it work i don't make for a very nice dinner day with my girlfriend when i'm in that sort of execution mode but you know it does get stuff done especially when you have some big and hairy situation you need to deal with and you know i I had a lot of that ultra focused stuff from the dual working days apply to the COVID situation for us. Mm. So, but anyway, no, so definitely don't quit the day job. There are so many extra hours in the day and the week that can be put into use to just uh, build a million dollar idea and uh, the risks are lower. And if you can swing it time-wise, you're just going to love it. Make it happen. Wow, good on you. I was doing, I thought I knew enough about PhysiTrack, but I did some research, you know, in preparation for this. And and did I read it right that you're also a bit of a wicked guitar player and you've entered songs into Eurovision? 
Or am I reading about a different co-founder of FizzyTrack? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's not super widely known, but but yeah, I, I'm a guitar player. Actually, I went to music school before I discovered the you know science and mathematics and and finance back in the in the early 19th century. But yeah, I have a rock band. We play covers. Uh, I compose you know songs for the band. We've done cool. a number of recordings. We entered uh, songs for the last Eurovision in several countries: so Sweden, Netherlands, Estonia, where I think San Marino. And so yeah, it's a passion of mine and it's a great way to think about other stuff because as you're up there and uh, you're trying to get through you know some interesting guitar arrangements uh, then uh, yeah it's it's hard to think about busy track and business and, and other stuff so but, but been, you've also it's very fulfilling for me you, i don't i don't think you sleep because you've got like the, the, there were also like you've also written stuff about like financial fiction as well like what else do you do <laughs> Yeah, well, listen, I think it's important. I mean, so it's back to side hustles, right? So the book writing was an important outlet to, you know, because I have a bit of a creative side. Not many people think I do when they they talk to me in a business context. But I have a creative side and it's very important not to neglect that. And and so this was also a long time ago. I mean, the, the last, my last novel was released in 2005, but I wrote four financial thrillers. The first one, Silent Partner, was very successful. It was, I think to date, it's the best selling thriller in, in the, you know, in the, in the financial thriller space that was ever published. It outsold J.K. Rowland at, uh, for, yeah, for a couple yeah. of weeks in, in, in Sweden. Sweden is a small country, so it, just, it doesn't <laughs> apply. It's, uh, it's, uh, but, but yeah, it's, I had that as a, as a side gig for, for a long time. And it was really cool to, to sort of switch between the hedge fund or the finance guy stuff and then to have a a very different side of it which was uh, you know creating stories and communicating as a writer and having something very creative and then getting fan mail from people that just love the stuff that i I did that was so it's it's very fulfilling you don't have to have a commercial side hustle to to enjoy life you can actually have a creative one so you know music and writing and painting and you know whatever whatever it can be i I think uh, those are those are excellent ways to uh, just enjoy life a little bit more wow i love it we can all have a side hustle what a good message um Starting to round things out though, Henrik, what's on the horizon for Fizzy Track? What have you got next after your, um, you know, telehealth's been a big focus? What now? What do you work on? Well, we're a much bigger company now. And uh, that affects a little bit the way that we make decisions and how we can prioritize and invest in projects and markets. We used to have to make decisions more tactically, meaning we needed to see fast returns on the launch of new features and when we launched into new markets. And we never took down venture capital. So it meant we had to sort of eat what we killed in terms of what we could do with the business, with the revenue that we would make from people. So now it's a little bit different because things happen very, very, very fast for us. And we can make bigger strategic investments. And so we can move into markets where things might not happen super quickly for us. So Germany is a, is a great example of a place where we think it has a lot of opportunity. It's very an exciting place, but I think it will be a bit of a slow burn for many reasons. Technology and regulation are two of them. Japan was very interesting. A similar situation there. I think it will take some time for that to to really accelerate and and take off. But we've been excited about Japan for a long time. We just didn't have the resources to localize it and to have business development resources spent on it to to just travel in and out of Japan to have liaisons and uh, and partnerships uh, Mm. to do stuff locally. We've been doing more stuff in Latin America 
we have a Spanish product and we didn't really do any biz dev on the ground down there. So a lot, a lot of interesting things down there as well. Uh, and we have a new Brazilian Portuguese product that's, that's coming out as well. So we can do things in Brazil. So yeah, and then on the boring side of that, we can focus more on governance and compliance with uh, with regulators and stuff like that. So uh, to, uh, this is important for the enterprise side of things. So the, the, with these big deals and these really big companies that we have the, the fortune mm-hmm. to work with now, they need more of these things. So we got a classification of Fizdrag as a medical product. So we have a CE stamp now on it. We're, we're, we're coming ISO 27001. And so we didn't have time. We didn't have resources to do stuff like that before. And we can really go for that now. Mm. Uh, so yeah, basically more lawyers, <laughs> more, <laughs> more governance consultants, and you know, joining, joining us uh, on the side of more software and business developers. Yeah, so, so we have an exciting six to 12 months ahead of us with a lot of new features, a lot of new markets. And, you know, hopefully we see some of, some of the good fortunes uh, that we've had they, that they continue. Yeah, amazing. Oh, it's going to be a wild ride. And I'm sure you're going to jam in more side hustles somehow into that period. So I, I do wish you all the best over that period. And I'll and I'll put some links into some some information about FizzyTrack and some other things that we've talked about in this episode in the show notes. So Henrik, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Peter. It's, uh, you're great. Thanks for everything. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.